Section 90 of The Catholic's Ready Answer This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Catholic's Ready Answer by Rev. M. P. Hill Section 90 Soul Objection Observation and Experiment have failed to discover the existence of a soul in man. The so-called spiritual acts that are supposed to prove the existence of a spiritual soul have been discovered to be modifications of the cell tissue of the brain. The answer. Are observation and experiment the only means of acquiring knowledge? They form the basis of the physical sciences, but are there no other sciences? Are not logic rational philosophy and mathematics, sciences, as well as physics, chemistry and physiology. Even in the latter sciences, observation and experiment are only the beginning of a process of induction which is brought to a close by deduction or inference. This may seem too obvious to need mentioning, but the exclusive dominion of observation and experiment in the realm of science has been so often assumed, or practically held in our time, that we deem it necessary to emphasise the part played by deduction, even in scientific research. Very little reflection is needed to see that the acts of the mind are of a different order from those of the bodily senses and of the imagination. Thought is immaterial, supersensible, spiritual. Even when we think of material things, we think of them in an immaterial manner, this is evident from the way in which we designate them, referring them, as we do, to certain classes or species. We predicate the universal of the individual. We say, this is a tree, that is a house, which is equivalent to saying, that belongs to the class of things called trees, etc. The mind has, therefore, certain immaterial and general concepts, such as tree, not this or that tree, but the species tree, horse, man, animal. These universal and immaterial concepts are the product of the mind and, formally, exist only in the mind. They are called abstractions, because the mind, in forming them, abstracts or withdraws its attention from the individual object and considers only the class or species to which it belongs. Such is the spiritual alchemy, by which the mind acts upon the things of sense and imagination and transforms them into the things of the mind. These universal notions differ from impressions produced upon the senses and even from pictures of the imagination, both of which are confined in each case to the particular and the individual. My general or abstract notion, tree, is not identical with the image of any particular tree which I happen to be thinking of at the moment, it may be applied to any tree. Now we conclude that if the mind is able to think of things in an immaterial or spiritual way, it must itself be spiritual, and the soul, of which it is a faculty, must also be spiritual. The argument grows stronger when we consider the purer forms of abstraction, which get furthest away from concrete existences of any kind, material or spiritual, such, for example, as the general ideas of virtue, vice, truth, falsity, right, obligation, power, possibility, being, 
it is impossible to explain by the materialistic theory we are refuting such expressions as can, must, might and ought, connoting possibility, necessity or obligation. Those four monosyllables represent ideas. No mere picture-making faculty, such as the imagination, could ever do justice to them in its attempt to represent them. They pass beyond the limits of the sensible and the concrete. Universal ideas have so much reality that they can be made the subject of thought and discourse as distinct immaterial entities, not that they have any existence outside the mind such as Plato imagined. They represent things outside the mind, but only under some universal aspect. Formally, and in themselves, they are the things of the mind, but as such they are realities, and not less so than the things we see, feel and touch. To deny their reality is to deny the reality of science, which is wholly made up either of abstract ideas or of universal formulae. Nevertheless, there are those who deny the existence of universal ideas. Some object to them as being airy nothings. Ideas, they tell us, should stand for objective realities in the order of existing things. But there is nothing in that order resembling a universal. Our answer, in the first place, is that universals are realities themselves, but of the immaterial order. In the second place, they represent that objective reality which consists in the identity of nature of many things belonging to the same class or species, as, for instance, the humanity which is common to all human beings. This it converts into a universal notion which it predicates of all members of the species. Such is the basis of all true science, which sees the general law in the particular instance. Others regard universal ideas as convenient fictions, a sort of mental algebra, whose formulae are generalised for convenience sake. Abstractions, they say, are only symbols indicating that we have noticed points of resemblance in things that differ. To get, for instance, what is called the idea horse, we simply observe a number of horses and then, recollecting our experience and having a confused phantasm of horses in the imagination, we confine our attention to the points in which they all agree and which mark off the horse as distinct from other animals. This single impression of likeness left on the imagination we represent by the term horse. Here, we are told, there is no more universality than there is in comparing a man's face with its portrait on canvas. Thus far the objection. It carries with it its own refutation. For how is it possible to confine the attention to points of resemblance and exclude points of difference, unless by the aid of a faculty which is independent of the individual and the material? Sense and imagination are pinned to the single objects which they represent and have no power of passing from one object to another for purposes of comparison. In the mind, on the other hand, there is a transcendent activity which makes it rise superior to material and individual conditions. The process described in the objection may possibly be a horse's way of knowing things, but it is not a man's. A horse, after some experience of dogs, possibly has in his imagination a confused image of dogs, with accompanying feelings mostly unpleasant, and every new member of the canine species 
brings the image and by association the feelings to the surface of consciousness and then follow the usual external marks of recognition. But the horse's master has a much superior knowledge of dogs. The man, like the horse, has seen many dogs in his time and like the horse he may have a confused phantasm of dogs in his imagination to which he relates every new dog he meets. But he possesses a faculty which passes beyond the limits of sense and imagination. These latter faculties are but picture-making faculties. The pictures may be either successive or simultaneous and confused, but they can never represent anything but single objects. Now let us suppose that the man undertakes to write a book on the dog. Is the subject of the book a confused mass of phantasms of dogs? Surely not. It is the dog, not dogs. By the superior power of mind, the writer will be enabled to review his successive impressions of dogs, note the various points of identity and difference existing between individual dogs, and draw his general conclusions. But general conclusions are general propositions, and even though they represented no reality of any sort, do they not argue certain mental processes of composing, dividing, and comparing which exceed the powers of any sensitive organ or of any sensitive faculty. Such processes are evidenced even in our daily use of human language. But there is another faculty, which furnishes a no less cogent proof of the immateriality of the soul, namely the will. This faculty possesses freedom of action, a fact that may be proved by any one and at any hour of the day, the very fact that it acts upon motives, that it waits until it sees a reason for acting, that it passes from one insufficient reason to another till it finds an adequate reason for deciding, proves that it is master of its actions. Such freedom cannot belong to material things. The action of matter is fixed by law. Gravitation, chemical affinities and the like act always in the same way, and the scientist in his laboratory would be surprised to find them varying in their action. But the soul is free and self-determining, and consequently immaterial and spiritual. Thinking and willing are not, then, modifications of the tissue of the brain. Brain action does indeed accompany every act of thought and volition, but only accompanies it, and is not identical with it. Sensible images also accompany those spiritual acts, but are not identical with them. The senses and the sensitive appetites of the pure animal nature range among natural objects with an activity which, up to a certain point, resembles that of man. But where it is a question of reviewing one's experiences, classifying, generalising, reducing to science, then higher or spiritual powers must be brought into requisition, which powers must, of course, belong to a soul that is spiritual. End of section 90. Recording by Florence.